This episode of The Transmission is brought to you by Audible.com, the leader in spoken word entertainment. Get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. For details, go to audiblepodcast.com slash transmission. The Transmission, episode 70, September 6, 2009. You're not taking drugs, are you, John? I only ask because of the strict zero tolerance policy you've enacted. And I wouldn't want you to have to start punching yourself in the face. Aloha from the Island Lost fans. You are tuned into The Transmission. This is a podcast devoted to the show Lost on ABC. My name is Jen. And I'm Ryan. And we're glad to be back here for the first episode of our revisit of season three. And here's how it's going to break down. We'll recap the first three episodes in hopefully eight minutes or around there. We'll give it a shot. Then we'll share our thoughts on each of the episodes as we go back and take a look. We'll hear from you all, everybody, in our feedback segment. Then as a special treat, we're going to announce new prizes for our Season 3 giveaway and share a lost song that, uh, well, frankly, has been stuck in our head It's very catchy. And finally, we'll cover the first two weeks of Lost production here on the island in the forward cabin. Awesome. So, you ready? Let's get lost. All right, here we go. The first three episodes of season three. First, A Tale of Two Cities. The episode opens with a familiar eye. It's Juliet's dressing and burning her muffins before her book club meeting in Othersville. They argue about Stephen King and Ben when the house starts to shake. They run outside to see Oceanic 815 crashing, and Ben dispatches everyone to investigate, including Goodwin and Ethan. Now, the main flashback for this episode belongs to Jack, and he's stalking Sarah, first at her school and then blowing a meeting at the lawyer's office when he demands to know who her new boyfriend is. He starts going through the numbers in her cell phone when his father, Christian, finds him. The next number he dials is Christian's phone, and Jack gets suspicious. Christian calls Jack obsessive, and... Jack calls his dad a drunk. He eventually follows Christian to his AA meeting and confronts him in front of everybody. He ends up in jail, and Sarah bails him out. Sarah tells Jack that his father was drunk again, and that at least now Jack has something to fix. Jack asks her if the man waiting outside is him, and she says it doesn't matter who he is, just who he isn't. On the island, Jack wakes up in the Hydra behind some glass. Juliet comes in. He yells and yanks on chains, refuses food, and Juliet calls him stubborn. She asks about him and his job and why he was in Sydney. At first he says he was a repo man, mm-hmm. but then he explains that he was bringing home his dead father. She says Jack needs to eat to offset the effects of the drugs he was given, but when she brings it in, he attacks her and tells her to open a metal door. She says they're going to die if she does, and Ben shows up and says she's telling the truth, but Jack opens the door anyway and water floods in. Ben ducks out and locks Juliet in with Jack as water fills up in the station. They manage to close the door and Juliet decks Jack. (laughs) When he comes to, Juliet admits that they're underwater. She also says he has his whole life in front of her in a file. He asks about Sarah and asks if she's happy. Juliet says yes, she's very happy. Kate, meanwhile, wakes up in the showers and Tom tells her to clean up. She puts on a dress left for her and is taken to see Ben on the beach. He tells her to put on some handcuffs and to otherwise enjoy 
enjoy the food and the view. He says she needs something nice to hold on to because the next two weeks will be very unpleasant. And Sawyer finally wakes up in a cage and meets Carl in another cage. Carl lets him out and they run, but Juliet finds Sawyer and tasers him. Back in the cage, he eventually figures out the food dispenser and gets a Dharma fish biscuit. Tom locks Kate up in a nearby cage and he gives her his fish biscuit. That moves us to the glass ballerina and it starts with the main flashback for Sun, first as a young girl lying to her father about breaking a glass ballerina and later having an affair with Jay Lee. He wants to run away with her to America, but her father shows up. Busted! Awkward. He later tells Jin that Jay Lee is stealing from him and that he needs to put an end to it. Jin tries to quit, but Mr. Paik says, uh, you can't quit. You're my son. Jin goes home and argues with Sun. She says that they could go and start a new life together, but he says he does his job in order to be with her. He goes to Jay Lee, beats him up, and tells him to leave town, but Jay Lee dies anyway, falling onto Jin's car. Mm. On the island, Juliet brings soup to Jack and then goes to see Ben. Colleen shows up and says that Saeed's son and Jin have a boat and that they could find them. Ben tells her to assemble a team and to go and get the boat. Kate and Sawyer, meanwhile, are put to work building a runway. Juliet throws Sawyer some water, but he just pours it out. Sawyer then goes to Kate and kisses her. He fights off the others and gets a gun, but Juliet threatens Kate and Sawyer gives up. Sawyer later explains that he was testing how well the others could fight and that they're going to wait for the others to let their guard down and then attack. But Ben is watching them on his security monitors. Sun, Jin, and Saeed are on the boat waiting for Jack, and Jin wants to give up and tries to force them to leave. But Sun reveals that she knows how to sail too. They move along, they spot a dock, and set up another signal fire. Saeed admits to Sun that he thinks their friends were captured and that he's actually planning an ambush. Jin also figures out what's up and asks for a gun. They send Sun to hide on the boat, telling her where to find a gun. That night, while Saeed and Jin wait on the shore, the others sneak onto the boat. Sun shoots Colleen and jumps into the water and swims to Jin. Back on shore, Saeed apologizes and they head back. Ben goes to see Jack and says if Jack cooperates, he'll get to go home, like Michael and Walt. Jack says he doesn't even think anyone can leave, and Ben says they do have contact with the outside world. To prove it, he shows Jack a video of the Boston Red Sox winning the World Series and well, Jack's mind is blown. And the third of the three episodes, further instructions. The main flashback is for Locke, who picks up Eddie, the hitchhiker, who says he's looking for work. A cop stops him and finds Locke's stash of guns, but lets them go. They arrive at a compound, and Locke introduces Eddie. He says grace and thanks God for helping him to stop being angry and to help him find a real family. After being there for six weeks, though, Eddie tells Locke that he wants in on whatever they're doing in the greenhouse. Locke goes to see Mike and Jan, who are in charge, and he finds them packing. They say Locke screwed up, that Eddie is a cop, and he played him for a sucker. But Locke says that he can fix it. He takes Eddie into the jungle and points a gun at him. Eddie admits that they chose Locke because he was amenable for coercion. Eddie tells Locke that he's not going to shoot him because he's a good man, a farmer, not a hunter. Locke says, oh no, I'm a hunter. But Eddie walks away and Locke can't shoot him. On the island, Locke wakes up on his back in the jungle. Desmond runs by, naked, and uh, Mr. (laughs) Echo's stick falls to the ground. Locke goes back to the beach camp, takes some branches and a tarp, and goes to Mr. Echo's church. He can't speak, but he gets the message to Charlie. He needs to speak to the island. Locke goes into his sweat lodge, eats some brain paste, 
waste and has a vision. Boone appears and Locke apologizes to him. Boone says he's there to help him find his way to bring everybody together again. Boone then pushes Locke in a wheelchair through the Sydney airport and says someone is in danger and they need your help. So he sees several of his friends like Charlie and Claire and Son and Jin and Desmond and Ben. Then he finds blood on Mr. Echo's stick. Boone says they've got him. You don't have much time. Locke stumbles out of the sweat lodge and grabs a knife and he tells Charlie... I'm going to save Mr. Echo's life. In the jungle, they find Mr. Echo's cross. Locke says Mr. Echo must have been dragged away by the polar bear. They hear rustling and growling. Locke throws his knife but hits Hurley's canteen. Hurley explained that the others kept Jack, Kate, and Sawyer and sent him back and that Henry or Ben or whatever his name is was a leader. They tell Hurley to go back to camp and on his way, Hurley then finds naked Desmond. He asks for some clothes and Hurley gives him a tie-dye shirt and uh, Desmond tells Hurley about the fail-safe key and that Locke said he was going to save Jack and Kate and Sawyer in his big speech. Hurley asks, what speech? Locke goes into a cave. He scares off the polar bear and rescues Mr. Echo. Locke apologizes for doubting him and the island. Mr. Echo says Locke can still save his friends because he's a hunter. Back at camp, Locke tells everyone he's going to bring their friends home. Hurley tells Charlie he just got hit with deja vu. And And thud. Thud, thud, thud. And that's the first three episodes of season three in under eight minutes. And we'll take a short break to catch our breath. And then we're going to come back to share our thoughts on these episodes. can't wait to share our thoughts on the first three episodes of season three and to hear your feedback about them in you all everybody but first we want to let you know that today's podcast is brought to you by audible.com the internet's leading provider in spoken word entertainment audible has over 50,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded and played back anywhere anytime just like the transmission and thanks to audible.com you can get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today if you've always wanted to read the many many books Books mentioned on Lost, Audible.com is a great way to go. For example, you can pick up Animal Farm by George Orwell. It's a dystopian metaphorical novel in which a bunch of farm animals play out the dangers of an authoritarian Stalinist society. Now, if you recall an expose coming up in season three, Dr. Leslie Arst is arguing about the gun case and why Kate and Jack are deciding what's best for everyone. He references Animal Farm when he cries out, the, the pigs, pigs are, are walking. walking! So you can make that book your free pick with this offer just go to audiblepodcast.com slash transmission that's audiblepodcast.com slash transmission all right so we've now burned through the first three episodes of season three of lost i guess the middle season right now and what did you think Uh, let's start with a tale of two cities the season premiere i was creeped out this time around in a good way just the um when jack is in the hydra and he's chained up in that tiled room it really reminded me of a horror movie i can see that and also for me you know michael emerson ben doing very very well being creepy once again he's scary the part with kate on the beach Mm -hmm. under the beach umbrella he was terrifying. No, I remember where we left off before this season premiere where they were uh, on the pier. And there's actually kind of a lighthearted moment in a way where, you know, Ben's like, where's your beard? And they already know. And, you know, kind of a light moment because they revealed that Ben was in charge. But now he goes right back, I think, to being the really menacing, creepy person that we love from way back then. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I remember looking back here, the cage match episodes. And, you know, this was part and parcel of the writer's strike, which caused them to have six episodes 
episodes together and then a gigantic hiatus of maybe two right. or three months before they picked up again. And in order for logistical reasons for things to work out, they just sort of separated out this storyline. And I remember our initial reaction wasn't all that great. We no. thought that it was very slow. We thought that they were just sort of treading water. And I think there is certainly some of that because they were doing that throughout season two and three because they didn't know where the series was going to end. Right. On the other hand, now looking back, I like it a lot better. I do. Because now in season five, we got the breakneck speed. We got the reveals, the information, the action that we craved. But, you know, we kind of miss, I think, the way that they took their time with the long, slow shots, with the the facial expressions of all and the actors. And a great example of that is the opening scene where we see Juliet really struggling to hold it together. You know, she's she puts on downtown right. by, T- by Tula Clark and she's trying to smile and she can't because she's just sobbing. And that really touched me. There's something about the way she did that scene that was really uh, effective. Oh, I mean, I think we've all had days like that. I always burn my muffins too. Um, so certainly, actually, the opening sequence should, of course, bear some comment. It was, I think, one of the better opening sequences of any season oh, of yeah, Lost. Certainly I mean, better than Papaya's. Yeah, I mean, you have no idea where you are. You have no idea who these people are. You don't know where they're at and then you find out that they're on the same island that right. was a mind blower yeah and this that was the scene that actually introduces Juliet and I you know how attached we are to her now that this is how she joined us here on Lost and I also noticed though that it was a standalone scene it was really set apart from the rest of the episode yes they blew our minds going back to when the plane crashes but that's not where the rest of the episode picks up and we don't return there anywhere oh, yeah, there is until a gap, later yeah. in the season and that's sort of how they started season 5 the last season premiere that we had where they jump way back to oh uh, Daniel running into uh, Dr. Chang right down in the swan and talking about you know controlling time yes that was another way that they messed with us but it was a out of sequence just pulled out really to kind of shake our brains but didn't connect to the rest of the narrative I'm not sure if uh, they can do that again to us in season six so I'm kind of curious now how season six is yeah, going to open absolutely now that said I do think it was really cool to discover that the others these menacing people that emerged from the jungle with torture actually lived in suburbia yeah it looks like they shop at the gap and they have book club meetings and, <laughs> and bake so that was pretty cool and speaking of the book club meeting the lady that comes to Juliet's door just before it starts mm-hmm. her name the actress's name is julie adams okay she was in creature from the black lagoon oh she was one of the screaming ladies i guess that were scared by the creatures from the black Lagoon. i, I guess i've never seen well it. her character's name is amelia like amelia Earhart, right. which has come up sometimes on lost like um the uh, airport that uh, juliet leaves from hararat aviation is also an anagram Earhart, of Amelia. Yeah. So that was kind of cool. Now, the thing that I enjoyed about that conversation, of course, and that it does definitely come into play in, in the greater arc of losses we've discovered is the Ben is in charge, Ben is not in charge, and whether or not free will exists on the island. Right. So that was pretty cool. Also, it bears mentioning that uh, there was a Mobisode based on this episode, which was actually a deleted scene oh, right, the from missing this pieces. episode. Right, the missing pieces, where it is Amelia and uh, Juliet. She kind of needles her about, you know, has Ben told you how he feels about you, uh-huh. you know, which eventually becomes your mine and uh, the thing about <laughs> Ben's um, test results in his spine. Right, which, she's about to show Juliet's about to show Amelia the, the x-ray. x-rays when there's a knock on the door. So certainly very cool that they had all of that planned at least at that point. Um, now another scene that you had mentioned that we should talk about is the scene on the beach, that picturesque picnic that is ruined perhaps by handcuffs. Right, well the most frightening thing about that 
scene to me is that he promises that something really bad is going to happen and you can tell in his mind he's got some really horrible intentions but the creepy thing is is you don't really know what he's planning right and i think we do have some discussion of this in you all everybody but i mean yes it's true that uh he says in fact two weeks i mean a very specific length of time which helps you come up with some very terrible horrific scenarios about what he might be going up to also during that conversation was kind of an almost annoying i think mention of the jader or skater debate when he asked why did you ask about sawyer a millisecond before you asked about jack well i think that's very telling i think that definitely indicates that he's been watching them he knows that there's some kind of thing going on between jack and kate Mm. and between sawyer and kate and it occurs to him to ask that so i think he's definitely had his eye on all of them for a very long time and you know a theory that uh, popped up around that time was you know she eventually ends up seducing sawyer in the cage right and the question is was that part of the mission that ben gave her during the unspoken period that we haven't seen that it was either going to be jack or was either going to be sawyer but somebody was going to get it on with her for one reason (laughs) or another and that also reminds me now that i think about it of season five where you know where kate goes to see jack after losing aaron and you know again people say was that part of some greater plan that she's trying to get pregnant by either now in that case jack or sawyer so oh i don't know who knows who knows i mean maybe that's just getting a little bit ridiculous now one of the things that they did go out of their way to show us in this episode was that each of these three jack kate and sawyer had um, bandages on their arm from needles now uh, juliet mentions it's for the drugs that we've given you is that the same as the desmond's vaccine that they were giving no because remember juliet had to drink something before she got on the island too oh well did you think it was just more sedative then that was going on i don't know possibly i mean they did have to transport them from one island to the next right and i don't really know exactly what the effects on their bodies would be from traveling from the main island to that's true that's true that's my interpretation it just occurred to me that you know we we have still had a lot of questions about the vaccine whether it was for claire's baby or for desmond when he was in the hatch at the start of season two and what all that's about i remember watching it for the first time before juliet makes her mention of the drugs that we've given you i thought they had taken their blood again maybe feeding into the theories about impregnation and pregnancy and dna or something that they had to do with that information now Ben did a really good job in this episode, but I think uh, Elizabeth Mitchell was fantastic. I mean, she had us from this first episode. We were in love with her right away. Absolutely. She's so compelling to watch, especially the way that, and we see it with with other others, just the way that she's so calm and centered and doesn't raise her voice and doesn't get rattled. I, I love that about her. I just like that they, again, they let her and Jack play out those scenes. I am sure that if this had to happen in season five, you know, the whole sequence probably would have been three minutes. But whether or not they were treading water or just really trying to get into the characters, I felt more of the motivations. I felt more even of their doubts and suspicions in those scenes. So definitely Elizabeth Mitchell, she had us at I guess taser I don't know whatever <laughs> it is it is kind of interesting to see that the first thing that uh, Juliet ever does to Sawyer is tase him yeah. and I think that happens more than once and those two knowing what happens to those two in season five I think that's kind of cool how about the scene where uh, uh, Christian goes to see Jack and he's dialing all the numbers and then it's Christian's phone that rings well how does Jack not recognize Christian's phone number <laughs> I guess he doesn't call his dad that much I don't know 
that's to me that that's just weird that's there's something there that really bothers me and and it's not it's not even just because he should know that the number it's just a very oddly played out sequence i guess but i remember we watched this episode a week before the rest of the country did at the uh the, the oh premiere sunset on at the, the beach, beach. Yeah. and when that happened and that phone rang i loved it and everybody was like whoa <laughs> like imagine thousands of people <laughs> saying busted it was fantastic <laughs> but i think overall i mean what's the lesson we take away from this episode as far as jack's character jack is a horrible human being <laughs> okay there's he that sucks he's a jerk yes he we... goes and just goes into an aa meeting where people go to get rid of their burdens in complete privacy and safety and safety and he goes in there and he barges in because he's angry well i suppose why well, I, I i do think that you know it's good to revisit christian shepherd's character because overall you know looking back now across five seasons his character isn't necessarily the best person in the world. I mean, he certainly has his faults, but he's definitely set up as an almost epic, you know, tragic character Christian is. I looked at this episode, I looked at him differently in this episode than I had before after knowing what we know about him and seeing that he has probably had something to do with the island. I really saw him as a tragic figure. I, f- I felt generally bad for him that he had to have this kind of relationship with his son. Right, but the fact that he may or may not now have a tie to the island and may or may not be dead or something going on with him and uh, Jacob and all of that, um, certainly you now try to read things in a number of different ways, but certainly I just remember feeling uh, feeling quite deeply for what happened to Christian because he was he was so proud or his AA group was so proud that he'd been sober for a certain number of and days now it's gone and then he ends yeah. up drunk because of his son right. um, there were of course some lighthearted moments in this episode as the well the fish biscuit scene <laughs> absolutely I thought that was really well done I mean again the, the, sure you could have had the horror movie it could have been just in the tank and the green lighting the whole way through but they gave us some light moments especially with Josh figuring out the doohickey that gives him the food for right, the and then bears. Tom coming in only took the bears two hours that's right i thought that was great and specifically for you know for skaters sake i mean we do know that kate ends up with jack for a bit in season five but this was a very strong set of episodes for people interested in sawyer and kate and i you know i I don't want to get into that debate but i think they they had fantastic chemistry they did they did i thought that whole scene where he shares the fish biscuit with Kate was so great because th- he had this look in his eye like all he wanted to do was feed her and take care of her and then when she finally does get the fish biscuit and she starts to eat it she covers her mouth in a very shy way like she doesn't want she doesn't want him to see her eat and I, I love that it was it's just like what the little things that matter and that was like an example of that I agree I mean those little touches are again the things that they might not have taken the time for in the last season so it's good to see them doing that here in season three now there was a scene where Jack uh basically says that he's going to kill Juliet, you know, right before he opens the door with the water. And, And Ben basically says, all right, go ahead, kill her. Yeah. And that was kind of a cold moment, but that really telegraphs uh, the future scene where Ben, um, you know, is with, who's he with? And he says, you know, you're going to kill everybody on that oh, boat. Oh, on the freighter. That's right. right. Yeah. And he goes, so? so? Yeah. I mean, so he's made that specific kind of cold statement before. So definitely another chilling moment for Ben. And, um, you know, it's also telling that this was an episode or this was a season that did give us part of the Dharma, you know, mythology, because that's the sets or that that's the stations that we're dealing with here. But it's interesting when Juliet says Dharma was a long time ago, understanding that we're eventually going to end up spending a lot of time a long time ago. What I liked about that, though, the whole Dharma thing this season is that it's a nice, tiny, little appetizer-sized taste of it. It's not 
all at once. It's just enough to be intriguing. And that's what I really like about it. Right. I think that's uh, one of the things that they do well. And there are some times where Lost kind of gives you too much of a good thing. I, I actually enjoyed the, the Dharma episodes in season five, but some people thought that, you know, that 70s show was just a little bit too much for them to bear. So maybe just leaving a little morsel is better than giving you the whole dish. Now, let's move quickly on to the Glass Ballerina. This was, I guess, a Sun and Jin episode. What do you think of that one? Sun to me, I, I can't tell you how I feel about Sun because she has changed. She's gone all over the spectrum of of character development. You know, I don't know if she's a liar, if she's a con artist, if she's a good person who's found herself in a bad situation. Um, but well, this episode really highlights all of those things. I think that this episode, you know, it wasn't, I don't think, one of their best um, for those two characters. However, it was pivotal in terms of their story arc, because this is the episode where they said, oh, you know when you suspected that maybe Sun was sleeping with her English uh, instructor? Well, she is. Uh-huh. And, you know, um, basically the things that Jin does that makes him a bad person, he tried to quit. But, you know, he got he was kept in. Every time, every time I think I'm out, they, they pull me, me back, back in. in. So I actually kind of liked it in that sense because we have seen i'm not sure if sun's been all over the spectrum necessarily i think that we've seen a very consistent progression from season one where she's the very put upon somewhat emotionally abused very meek you know korean wife to season five where she's ready to be a mercenary killer along with ben you know she wants to be uh, she wants to be a player and taking over her dad's co- company for right. crying out loud i think that that's actually been a consistent growth for her so this episode was key in terms of turning the tables you know jin is a little more victimized he's a little more a good husband who wants to be with his wife and son, although she says the right things, she actually may or may not have other uh, motivations going on. Right. So I kind of like that. Now, this episode had a uh, had a prop that you mentioned that stood out. It opened on a metronome. Mm-hmm. And it's the first time that it ever opened on a metronome. And um, I happened to notice later on, I think in season four, or maybe even later on in the season, we see Ben playing a piano along to a metronome. Mm-hmm. And then we also see Daniel playing piano along to a metronome. Right. I'd forgotten about the Ben scene that was actually a really good scene too yeah. in the in the the house and the others but yeah i definitely thought remember the daniel faraday flashback with the metronome so you know certain themes it's always good to recognize that uh, they were in place or that we didn't notice they were themes at least the first time that we saw them now there was uh kind of an awkward moment in the hall of the Hydra where uh, Juliet and Ben are talking and Colleen shows up. What do you think was going on there? I don't know. There's some professional jealousy or some kind of rivalry between um, Juliet and Colleen. It's hard to read. It seems to me that Colleen is jealous of Juliet's position with Ben, Hmm. that that Colleen feels that Juliet is getting some kind of special treatment from Ben and she resents that a little well there was uh, you had mentioned actually just a little while ago about how Colleen how Juliet is like a lot of the others where they speak in that low confident and comforting way definitely you pick that up in this episode where Colleen's talking yeah, to on the son on the boat yeah so in many ways I think there's some similarities between the way Colleen conducts herself and Juliet conducts herself and whether that's Ben who makes them that way whether that's Dharma training that makes them that way or is it you know more more likely given Ben's power and uh, interest that he basically kind of goes for a certain kind of woman. I think that that might have been kind of what's going on here. I mean, again, we get back to what we know from the future about uh, Juliet's relationship with Goodwin and Ben's jealousy and what ends up happening to Goodwin. What I want to know is, given that, do you think that Ben knew what was going to happen to Colleen when he sent her to head this great mission to confront our friends and try to get the boat from them? I've always said that nothing happens on the island that Ben isn't aware of or that Ben can't control. 
control. I think he might have meant for somebody to get hurt on that boat. I don't know if it was Colleen, but he must have known that they would try to take the boat back and that somebody would get hurt. Well, he wanted them to get the boat. I'm gonna I'm gonna say it right now. I think that the same way that Ben sends um, Nathan and the same way that Ben sends. Uh, Goodwin to his their deaths, he's doing the same thing to clean here for whatever reason, maybe because of the tension that we pick up. I don't think it's an accident at all that things didn't turn out very well for her. But again, it's great to have the knowledge that we now have about these characters and motivations, what's going on in um, these others when we revisit these scenes and can kind of question what's been happening. Now, Glass Ballerina continued, as we mentioned, some good skater scenes. There, well, there's a lot of them. There's mm-hmm. the scene in which um, Sawyer is ogling Kate and then he catches another other ogling Kate and he kind of sticks up for Kate. How says, dare How you? How dare you? Yeah. Even though he'd been doing the exact same thing. The you taste like strawberries. Yeah. Um, of course, the big kiss. Um, certainly the kinds of things that uh, skater messenger boards live for. So again, though, I think that as far as chemistry goes, you know, I don't think Kate and Jack ever really had that level of chemistry that we're seeing here. I'm not turning into a skater, but I'm definitely seeing the strength of here the relationship comes the hate mail. and how, <laughs> how those two um, really play off each other very well. Now, uh, I guess we can discuss one sort of question that comes up with this episode because it continues a series, and that's Saeed's strange inability to come up with a really good plan, despite being a former member of the army. That puzzles me. And the only thing I can come up with is that he lets his heart lead him more than his brain. And maybe he had some kind of gut instinct or something that led him to that decision. Um, But in his, I don't know. He does. Yeah. He is the king of the bad plan. It seems to be, you know, just one in a series. And so even watching it unfold, I'm already getting frustrated and rolling my eyes because you know how it's going to end up. However, I think, you know, in all fairness, you might not have known that the others had a boat and they were not going to get to the boat via the dock. Nonetheless, not the brightest moment in Saeed's history. No. There. Now, the end of this episode is, I guess, what really does it for me. I mean, again, I don't think this was a very strong episode altogether. But the end of the episode where, one, Ben introduces himself as Ben for the first time. He says, right. I'm Benjamin Linus, but he's but a couple of things happens. First, he says that I've lived on this island my whole life, which we later discover is a lie. Is like anything else Ben says, a complete and total fabrication. But the scene where he says, you know, we can we have contact with the outside world. Christopher Reeve has died. George W. Bush was reelected, and the Red Sox won the World Series. Just the way that Jack is completely disbelieving of that fact. Matthew Fox does like one of the best scenes in his entire acting career. I think in that scene, just the look of disbelief on his face and mocking disbelief right. like yeah right of all the things that you could have said to make me believe that you know what's going on in the outside world the red Sox, come on because he and, conveys like the frustration and the disbelief and also you know he's a little loopy because juliet says you know you you're dehydrated right, right. you really get a sense of of how he must feel on his face. And so when he brings out the television and he shows the scene of the Red Sox winning the World Series and basically Jack's, you know, jaw drops and he says, you know, do what I say and I'll get you home. And then thud, mm-hmm. that's one of my favorite thuds, I think, in all of Lost. Oh, yeah. So even though it wasn't necessarily the best episode, that thud um, left me just really elated. I thought that was fantastic. Uh, finally, we should discuss further instruction, another episode that opens with an eye. Lock's eye. Yeah, Lock's eye in that case. What did you think of this episode? I found it a little frustrating because on one hand, you have the really trippy psychedelic vision 
that Locke has. And, and on the other hand, you have this, the kind of continuing story of Locke being a sucker. It felt kind of uneven to me. Well, I mean, especially given what happens to Locke in season five. And when you're like, whoa, did we even miss the fact that he died? And it turns out he died a sucker and we didn't even notice, basically. Right. I mean, it is very depressing to some extent to see Locke, especially given, I think, how much everybody loves his character. This was another Locke is a sucker episode that was definitely not an uplifting one. Um, though we should definitely talk about Locke's vision, his vision quest, his dream, his experience there with Boone, who they brought back for this episode, which was kind of cool. You know, Locke has had many, many dreams. Now, many of our characters have had visions and dreams, but Locke has had, I think, the most across the entire series. Right. He started with seeing the drug plane crash. He started with Boone and, you know, Teresa, Teresa falls goes, up yeah. the stairs and down the stairs. He uh, saw Horace in season four building, you know, Jacob's cabin. With a bloody nose. So yeah. this is his most elaborate dream sequence with the most possible messages that could be conveyed where he sees all of his friends in different uh, situations. Do you think that there were some important messages in that vision or were they really just kind of exploring what was going on in season three? Was it something telling us something that's going to happen later in Lost? The part that struck me is when they see Desmond arm in arm with a bunch of um, flight attendants Mm. and Boone says he's helping himself. And I didn't know to what specifically he was referring, Mm -hmm. but then we realized that he's later on that he has visions of, of Claire and Aaron getting on the helicopter and it made me think maybe this maybe him telling Charlie about his vision is a way of him helping himself. I, don't I suppose. Know how I suppose. Yet. Yeah. I mean, he, there was some selective truth telling for for the next few episodes about those visions right. that seem to benefit Desmond. So I can see that. And you know, he's someone who has struggled with um, being a coward or being somebody who is a, a hero. So that's not bad. I I thought that you know sh- certainly the Claire and Charlie and Aaron they're okay for now. Um, we certainly know that that was true. They 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 had a they had a falling out. They had a coming together. But in the end, that relationship was not long for this. World, so I thought that was pretty significant. Um, and you know, I hate to come back to the skaters, but this was also key for them because they specifically show Sawyer and Kate being happy and Jack off in the corner sulking. So, you know, what are they trying to say about those characters? So, what is it that Sawyer has in his hand? Uh, that's just sort of a ticket or a plane ticket. I mean, um, they've definitely uh, picked that apart. You can look on Lost PD if you want to see what that oh, prop okay. is, but I don't think there was anything necessarily big there. Um, Hurley with the numbers, of course, um, punching numbers into the, the flight or, you know, giving at the ticketing counter and Ben as a security guard shepherding people onto the plane. I thought that was kind of a possible foreshadowing there. Right, because he gets everybody back on a Jira 316. That's right. He was part of that operation. So I thought, you know, maybe or maybe not. Did they have all those things in mind when they wrote that scene? I'm not sure. But, you know, when when it was season three, certainly, and we're, we're hungry for messages, that one was picked apart quite a bit. Now, this was a lock episode, but I don't know about you. I think this was a Charlie episode. You, Charlie really saved this episode from being kind of weird and hokey the the part where he's getting ready to hunker down in his sweat lodge it could have been kind of kind of goofy but i thought his his sarcastic commentary on the situation really helped help to save it sort of yeah someone in uh, you all everybody makes that exact same observation and i totally agree he that you know comedic relief was needed for this episode and all of his lines are fantastic trees are wonderful conversationalists you know you know given your zero tolerance zero tolerance policy about drugs i don't want you to have to go and punch yourself in the face um, just <laughs> yeah. a lot of really good polar stuff bears there. are the einsteins of the bear community absolutely 
absolutely, which <laughs> has been proven um, time and time again. So I thought that was pretty good. And in fact, Charlie also says one of the famous lines of the entire series, which is, don't tell me what I can't I, right. do. So I thought, again, you know, this was a lock episode, but um, a lot to love and like about Charlie here as well. What did you think about the polar bear and how it kind of came back with a vengeance here and apparently stole Mr. Echo and dragged him into a cave? What was that all about? How many are there? That's, I don't know. That's the only thing that struck me. It's how many are there? Well, there's got to be more than one because Tom says it took the bears two days to True. figure it out um, and they shot one of them. So if there are only two, then maybe we've lost the, or we've met the only other bear. I'm not sure. What I was really cued into, though, was the fact that there were all those skeletons in that cave, you know, Dharma skeletons. Mm-hmm. Now, we've seen Dharma skeletons in a pile before, thanks to Ben and the Purge. But here we're led to believe that in the period since the Dharma initiative, the bear gets out of the cage and starts collecting himself some Dharma dinner. He does have to eat. Okay, I suppose. I'm just wondering if those skeletons were there because the bear dragged him there, or because there were Dharma initiative people hiding there, or if, again, that's maybe one of the many dumping places after the purge. I'm you not know, sure. I had noticed until you brought it up just now for some reason, so, I mean... Any of those possibilities is pretty intriguing. <laughs> well, what about the dump truck? I thought that was kind of cool because, you know, one of the little things, one of the themes in Lost that uh, we've kind of lost track of lately is the kids, the children right. on the island. Right. We haven't seen Zach and Emma in a long time. Oh, absolutely. So what does the dump truck mean? And <laughs> where does it come from? Are there, there drops of Dharma dump trucks? Or toys? I'm not sure. No, I think that, if anything, goes back again to when there was a school there and a playground yeah. and all of that. Yeah. But now I'm wondering if there, again, were there Dharma people hiding in the cave during the purge or was the bear collecting himself food and and had a little poo-poo, you know, had a small Dharma person for dinner. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, the dump truck was definitely very uh, curious to me. Now, there was one of those conversations, again, Hurley speaking as the proxy for the audience when he bumps into Desmond and Desmond says, oh yeah, well I had this key that sort of stopped this thing from happening and he says... That seems kind of convenient. Absolutely. I mean, (laughs) and again it's sort of the one line of dialogue which sort of dispels and washes away any questions that you might have about a scenario which is, we're so worried about this magnetic anomaly, which does become key in season Mm -hmm. 5, but the way that it's discharged forever is by a key that Desmond happened to have around his neck. So I just thought that was pretty funny. Now this was a significant geological magnetic event that happened that we're still discussing and living with the aftermath here in season three so that does kind of foreshadow what happens at the end of season five whether there may be a discharge of the magnetic anomaly at the same time Juliet may or may not be blowing up the uh, the warhead so is that the same thing are we seeing the same major event at the end of season five that we saw here leading into season three no to me it seemed different there wasn't the the purple and the humming and the um season five finale that you see right um, it was just a fade to white right and actually i do think they've discussed the color of the sky a number of times both here in season three and later on actually it doesn't it turn purple when the frozen donkey wheel is turned yes isn't that a descriptor of what happens when they're shifting through time yes so yeah i think that may or may not be a clue as to what happens at the end of season five because here you had the the blue sky purple sky event and uh, we know desmond begins to start having his visions this is where they begin He, he gets unstuck in time and time certainly was a factor when they turned to frozen donkey wheel and that's where the sky is purple. So whatever happened with just things fading to white again at the end of season five, if it was just not a dramatic uh, convention, it's probably something different. Right. Um, anything else in this episode that uh, jumped out at you? Well, Locke is struck mute pretty much the way that Echo decides.
decides not to speak after he kills those two people. That's true. They both had sort of this period of silence, a vow of silence. Although in Mr. Echo's case, it was self, I think he he made the resolution that he wasn't going to speak until he had something to say. Right. Where here Locke is not allowed to speak it was until involuntary, he has something yeah. to say. But that's, that's an interesting parallel, certainly. Um, this episode includes a great shout out to that wonderful, mysterious, largely unknown band, Geronimo Jackson. I really hope when the show is over, they release an album. <laughs> right. Well, they've already put out a song yeah. on iTunes. So, yeah, I mean, if there's anything that they might extend the series with, I could live with a Geronimo Jackson album. Oh, but yeah. I really enjoyed that. As far as things that may not be a bright point, though, I guess we should close by mentioning this is also the episode that introduced... Nikki and Paolo. Instantly the most hideous, awful, annoying characters <laughs> on the history of TV. Well, you know, it couldn't have possibly gone well for them. There was no way to do what they were trying to do, which is these characters have always been here wandering in the background, but we've decided to push them to the foreground and give them lines. And there was not, that, that just could there was no way it was going to go, go well. It was just awkward from the very beginning, and I can definitely see why they did not last long They on could the show. have made them more likable. They could have made them less irritating i mean the first thing nikki does is jump all over hurley's case right they She's... could you know they could have done it any number of ways and probably made it work but they chose to make them so unlikable right I, and I'm, and it's hard to think that that wasn't intentional given how things turn out for them unfortunately we know that because of the writer's strike because of the gigantic hiatus between the first six and mm-hmm. the rest of the season that the creators did have time to change direction change something based on fan response and i guess fans in large part are glad that they did react this way and get rid of Nikki and Paulo. I yeah. got to say, it gave us expose, which is the best way to kill off a character ever, at least I think. Um, <laughs> but I agree. I'm not sure, though, if I want them to always be that responsive to the fans because I like to think that for the most part, they're giving us the show they want to give us I hope and so. not the show that we want. Yeah. But in any case, we've rambled on quite a bit. That's our take on the first three episodes of season three. We're going to take a break, and then when we come back, we'll hear from you all, everybody. Hey, Ryan and Jen, this is Raphael from Austin, Texas, and I'm here to call saying you have the best Lost podcast ever. Now, on the first three episodes of Lost Season 1, they're all part of the awful cage match sequence, but still, they're pretty interesting. In the first episode, A Tale of Two Cities, we are introduced to the Hydra, where it is obviously implied that where the Dharma Sharp from Season 2 episode Adrift um, was kept along with dolphins. Also, Sawyer and Kate are kept in the cages where they kept the whole polar bears. And I have a theory that the Hurley bear was kept in one of those cages, too. Besides from that, I didn't really enjoy the flashbacks for this episode. Um, I mean, Jack going after Sarah Shepard and trying to find out who her boyfriend was. That wasn't that interesting. But it was neat to see him let it go at the end. Shows how, how mature Jack can actually be. Now, for the Glass Ballerina, I've never been actually enjoyed Sun Jen's soap opera flashbacks, but I always liked Jen, and I didn't like how everybody hated him, so I was glad we finally had an episode to prove that Jen was just an overprotective husband because of bad events in the past. And uh, I just have to say, some can be pretty evil sometimes. Um, as for further instructions, John Locke is by far the coolest guy in the whole world, and I always think it's so sad how he always ends up getting conned by everybody. And I, I wonder why Desmond was the only one that was naked and everybody else wasn't. Maybe it was because he turned the failsafe key. I don't know. Well, that's what I have to say on first three episodes of season one. I just have to say, 
Your podcast rocks. Thanks. Bye. We open things there with our only call from the Lost Line, good old Rayfield, valiantly trying to cover all three episodes there in his call. Now, he mentions the Hurley Bird. I forgot yeah, about that. Yeah, I forgot that. about the Hurley Bird. It's, it's only appeared in Exodus and Live Together, Die Alone. Season finales? Yeah. And so not since. There's only one more season finale left. Yeah, are we going to get a Hurley Bird in the series finale? You know, That'd be kind of that interesting. That bird kind of scared me. I hope not. Now, he mentions that he thinks that Jack kind of redeemed himself at the end, and I forgot. Yes, I mean, Jack is a jerk and an annoying person, but in that episode, they did go out of their way to say he did ask about his ex-wife but then his only question was is she happy yeah so in a way he's letting go so you know maybe that was a good moment for jack in the end i don't know that kind of doesn't make up what he did <laughs> it still doesn't dad, make though. up for it and finally i did want to address this question you know desmond ending up naked in the jungle and why why is everybody else not naked what do you think i know right that i asked myself the same question well i mean now so we have the the detonation going off at the end of season five is everybody in that area going to end up naked as jaybirds running around <laughs> a big pit i'm not sure that certainly could be very interesting well let's get to some of our other feedback focusing first on a tale of two cities scott in new york writes one of the most exciting beginnings to a season opening with the establishing shot of juliet's eye and her surroundings dalton had me confused and questioning always a plus along with season two this ranks as the best season premiere i always wondered what caused the earthquake was it the plane entering the island's space or atmosphere or was it the discharge that desmond failed to suppress there were no hints of the sky turning purple or a massive anomaly when the others looked up to view the plane breaking apart so we had just discussed that i'm not sure yeah they talked about the the purple happening when the hatch imploded but right specifically with the plane breaking up during that flashback that opening scene it wasn't purple that's so, true yeah i'm not entirely sure what that was and what the earthquake was although they're basically trying to say that whenever this anomaly gets working it's a pretty significant event but definitely many many people liked that opening scene nathan emailed us to say that the opening scene was breathtaking to see 815 crash from yet another angle and the best one yet was awesome not only that to find out that this modern and suburban looking development was on the island was a great way to set the stage for the season of the others i'm not sure what the point of this particular story is in jack's life i guess the depths of how obsessive he is in the stronger on island story jack was pushed to the breaking point and is finally starting to let it go. I did cheer his one last attempt to free himself when he took Juliet hostage. It's kind of, it's good to see in control and decisive Jack as opposed to wandering around and kind of confused Jack. Yeah, mopey Jack, definitely. Um, definitely a lot of people like that opening sequence, although Rob in Florida kind of had an issue with the logistics of a plane crashing and whether people could survive, and especially because in season five we see that they can sort of flash off the plane without a plane crash happening, so he's, you know, I think some fair questions, but just still. Just go with it. Just go with it. It was a great <laughs> special effects scene. Blue Dog 1121 writes, the season three opening scene may be my favorite season opener. When I first viewed it, it was just as shocking to me as a season two opener a true wtf moment <laughs> and elizabeth mitchell is so good as she fights back tears while trying to compose herself to get ready for the book club oh i hope 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 she plays a significant role in season six well we certainly agree with absolutely laurie in los angeles emails and says why did they burn kate's clothes was it a part of the breaking down process i did like that in the commentary of this episode damon indicated that they were referencing raiders of the lost ark when marion was made vulnerable when she was made to put on a dress. I hadn't noticed that, but yeah, there you go. That's I, a I, 
That's a really good That's one. a good observation. Absolutely. Bob in Florida writes, I don't think we've ever heard what happened to Kate on the day she was first brought to join Sawyer in her cage. Last we saw, she was having breakfast with Ben. Then suddenly at the cage, she's got red marks under her handcuffs and has been through something intense. What happened? Just let my imagination alone. And as I mentioned when we first discussed that section, um, it definitely lets your mind wander. But unfortunately, it was kind of revealed in a, a deleted scene in the DVD, not in the American release even, but in the UK release and in a special edition that came out in the uk the scene that was deleted was they take kate back to the to the showers and she used she tries to pull off her handcuffs she tries to hang off something and get Uh the handcuffs off her hands so she gets really really beat up but unfortunately she beats herself up and that's where all of those scars come from i think it was a lot better when i had yeah yeah. better when we could use our imagination exactly gavin emails and says in the opening book club scene it's funny how one of the others criticizes juliet's book pick as having no metaphors being a mashup of many ideas and how it's only a by the numbers piece of sci-fi it's a funny little line with the writers taking a dig at them themselves. But the best part that I noticed was when Juliet defended her selection by saying God forbid that she thought free will still existed on the island, only to be interrupted mid-sentence by the plane crash. Definitely a clue as to the whole fate versus free will battle to be sure. See, that scene bothers me because I don't know where Adam is coming from. I don't... The, <laughs> the criticism he levels that Carrie, I just don't see. Again, I think the writers were more writing about themselves probably <laughs> than about Stephen King, who they are big fans of. So let's move on to Glass Ballerina. Jen in Chicago emails and says, It was so interesting to be reintroduced to the characters we have grown to know and love and hate. It was definitely a different viewing experience than the ambiguous, uncertain episodes that I first watched. I remember being very wary of Juliet, whereas now she is one of my favorite characters. Don't be dead! The best part of the episode were when Juliet interacted with Sawyer. It was hilarious that their first introduction was her tasering him. I love that. That is great. I mean, that's love at first shock. And the look of death that Sawyer gives to her when he... when she tosses him the canteen and he, pours and it he out. glares at her and pours it out. I love that. And yet they end up living in happy domestic bliss there in Othersville. And uh, Gavin made the same observation as well. Roger writes, I love Sun, so this episode was kind of cool for me. Not too much important happened, but mm-hmm. I did enjoy the explosions and gunshots, <laughs> especially from Sun, who was totally gung-ho in this episode, something we hadn't seen her do yet. This episode really gives us our first glimpse at how independent and powerful Sun really is. In the first two seasons, Sun hadn't done much but obey her husband but this episode we see that she is a strong-willed woman who will do anything something we see more and more through season five so there you go definitely a turning point for sun now sheila emails us and says i didn't find this episode as interesting this time perhaps because many of the mysteries brought up in the episode have been solved but i still love the end when ben reveals his name to jack and shows the red Sox video nothing we did not already know but ben is the master liar large and small ben lies and yet the viewers and the Losties continue to want to believe what he says. And the reason for that is Ben also reveals important truths. So it's distinguishing between the truth and lies that is difficult. It's like digging through a big haystack for a little needle. You don't know what's true and what's not. Or when you're going to get your finger pricked. But uh, definitely, Michael Emerson is brilliant. Jay writes, The first time I watched the episode, I believed that Sun killed Jay Lee instead of him just committing suicide. And now that I think about it more, he could have just been acting, making it look like he was thrown out of a building 
building to keep Mr. Pate from getting suspicious. Also, the first time we get to see Kate and Sawyer working at the runway. The runway that will be completely and totally pointless until it suddenly becomes important when a Jira 316 lands on the island. Did they have this in mind when they wrote the cage match episodes? Were they really going for the aliens route <laughs> before deciding to use it to bring everyone back to the island? Well, uh, a couple of good points there. So first of all, did was Jay Lee pushed, thrown, or did he commit suicide falling out of that building? He was there? clutching Sun's pearls. Uh-huh. He was... He was devastated. He, he, of course, he threw himself out. So you think that it was suicide? You yes. think it was specifically what? But Mr. Pike says that it was probably suicide, and that makes me suspicious. I think Mr. Pike had a backup plan for son, for Jin, thinking that Jin wasn't going to go through with it, and someone else threw him out the window. Oh, I guess I hadn't thought of it that way. I, but unfortunately, I remember arguing about this when the episode first aired, so I guess we haven't completely solidified our theory as to what happened to Jay Lee. And I don't think we'll ever really find out. No. Well, about the runway, though, what do you think? I mean, that obvious i think the line about the aliens was clearly a joke no but... she was smirking and she said it that was clearly a joke <laughs> but it's a fair question that do you think that they knew that the jira flight 316 was coming later down the line so they had to start building this runway now how yeah how does that work i don't know the timeline confuses me and twists my brain in a knot but I don't know. Why would they say runway specifically? Runway makes me think of airplanes. Well, I mean, I think that it's fair to say that the writers had some idea that there would be another airplane perhaps coming or that it would be significant further on down the line. I'm just wondering. I mean, the way that you would tie it is that you have Mrs. Hawking, and she's off the island, obviously, at the listening post, and she's clearly pulling strings to some extent here and there. If this information was going back and forth between the island and the real world, then maybe there was already at that point some understanding that the crash of 815 would require some kind of corrective action, which would require another plane. From right. Her. But whether that plane they knew was going to be a Jira 316 specifically, I'm not sure, and I guess we're probably never going to know. Probably not. Let's move on to further instructions. Scott writes, People complain about this episode because, like a lot of people in the fan community, Locke is my favorite character, and his flashback episodes are usually flawless and very emotionally resonant. I didn't care about the story itself with Locke on a communal farm and whatnot. I did, however, care about what it said about Locke. Locke is not a hunter. He doesn't have it in him to kill anyone. It also shows another example of how Locke is constantly taken advantage of and exploited and how he loses his family or friends because of it. Yep, certainly just not a good day in the life of Locke and one of many in that series. Um, but do you recall that uh, Ralph from the Darmalars podcast had a very elaborate theory about further instructions? Yeah, he said that he felt that further instructions was a flash forward, the first flash forward. Right. That everything that happened on the commune happened after the island. Which I think was really innovative and really cool, especially, and it almost seemed like it could be the case when they eventually revealed that they do get off the island. Right. But unfortunately because they do get off the island, we know that that's not the course of, of, of Locke's life, which is even more tragic. But to me, and now I see it as more and more people just were willing to believe anything other than, yes, another scene where Locke is a complete and total sap. Annie writes and says, I just finished watching the first three episodes, and I'm finding it hard to watch our beloved Losties in their ignorant state. I'm not saying that their uh, ignorance or innocence of the island, its mysteries, and the others is their fault. Not at all. It's just hard to revert to this time of confusion when I think about all they know and have 
experience now through the end of season five. I think in this same episode, we see the appearance of either Jacob or Auntie Jacob, who took the form of Boone and possibly Echo when he had an exchange with Locke in the jungle after being rescued from the polar bear. I'm inclined to think that it was Auntie Jacob since we know that he manipulated Locke to find the loophole in season five. So, well, yes, it's sad to know that they've got more ahead of them, but that's a thought that um, that Boone in this vision is actually anti-Jacob taking Boone's form. Well, it, it is probably anti-Jacob since they have established that it definitely is not Jacob. Right. Well, so that's the case. So if it was someone taking that role, then it would be anti-Jacob and, and, and maybe Mr. Echo, too, although Mac- Echo wasn't dead. I guess he was close to death. No, I, I think that he was having a vision or a small vision, Locke was, of of Echo talking to him. Yeah, I don't think that we can say that everybody that we see now mysteriously looking back was anti-Jacob no. doing his thing. I mean, does that mean Horace was uh, anti-Jacob? Does that mean any of these other? I mean, yeah. I can see, though, where they're coming from in the sense that, yes, Locke turns out to be the person who becomes their stooge to get this loophole. Right. So maybe why not? Why aren't all of these visions in service of that ultimate end? And I should mention that Jay, who uh, emailed, also feels the same way about that, that possibility. Rich in Cleveland writes, Locke says, I was a hunter. I think the use of the past tense is really interesting here. For the longest time, I felt this referred to an unrevealed backstory in which Locke learned all his survival skills in some off-the-books military program. But in the context of what we've seen since then, this curious phrasing suggests to me more of a disorientation about landing in an alternate timeline. Hmm. Locke could vaguely remember, both as a boy in his test of holiness, and now as a man facing another trial, holding the knife and being the hunter. You can see the pain and confusion of Locke at this moment. Does he wield the sword of power or use the compass to lead the way? Wow. Well, you know, the again, the alternate timeline is something that could tie your brain in knots and is not a path down which many fans want to go. Yeah. But the mention of um, Locke's test as a boy with Richard Alpert, and he's supposed to pick the compass, but he really wants the, the knife. knife. Yeah. I'm, I think that's kind of an interesting observation because that event may or may not have actually happened to Locke originally, but then eventually happens because he starts this little time loop thing going on with Richard so is I guess you could see it as a reading that in this scene he's sort of half remembering something that doesn't exactly happen in his past I don't know Um, definitely a very creative thought there um, but I'm kind of not sure I'm ready to go down the alternate timeline path myself Nathan writes I know I may get laughed at when I say this but part of me actually misses the slower tempo of these episodes okay I can admit that these bear cage episodes aren't the highlight of season 3 and I can think even the writers admitted that they were stalling a bit at this point. What I mean is, though, that I miss the classic flashbacks and deeper emotional exploration of characters that was the standard in the early seasons. And yes, I admit, I even miss the mysteries. At this point in the show, there was still so much we didn't know, still so much to find out about the others. The smoke monster, the nature of the island, Jacob, the statue. Sometimes the mystery is more exciting than the actual answer. Which is why I hope they don't answer everything. Right, I think they better leave some for us to uh, argue about for the next five or six years after lost ends but i think we agree that we kind of like this pace as well now now that we've seen what a fast pace can be like we're actually kind of nostalgic about the slower pace bob writes in episode three eddie tells john locke that he was chosen to get him into the group because his psych profile says he should be amenable for coercion what a sad point to a recurring theme now that my season five eyes are telling me locke may have been taken advantage of for the final time by jacob's antagonist i hope not i like to see some kind of redemption for locke even if he dies in the process yeah i mean more of the same this was so sad to see happening to locke and if this is how his character ultimately ends in the entire series 
threes, we're all going to be very dissatisfied, I think. But uh, how they could get around that, how they could give him a redemption that even kills him again, I can't necessarily see how that could happen either. Well, they've had bigger things up their sleeve, so I, I still have faith that Locke will be a hero somehow. Part of me wonders if the only real, you know, the only real solace we're going to get is that even though Locke, the character that we all know and love, may be gone, this is going to still be an opportunity for Terry O'Quinn to shine and mesmerize us as an actor, even though he's now playing an evil or an anti, at least, anti-Jacob character. He will win another Emmy this year. All right. Mark my uh, words. We'll see. Finally, Jen in Chicago writes, I can't decide if I liked or hated further instructions. I think that the writers were still trying to find their footing in this episode with the weird sweat lodge dream. It would have been completely hokey, in my opinion, if Charlie hadn't been making sarcastic comments about it the whole time. True. Absolutely. That redeemed it somewhat. I thought it was a good backstory of Locke, however, and it explains a lot about who he is on the island, even if that's a schmuck. Once again, <laughs> Terry O'Quinn gives a brilliant performance, and I also love the open Geronimo Jackson references. Yes. So there you go. That's the feedback from you all, everybody, on these first three episodes. A mixed bag to some extent, but I think we're all kind of enjoying looking at them with fresh I'm eyes. I'm having great fun, actually. Now, I should mention, we got a lot of great feedback after we mentioned Donnie Darko in our last show um, on the blog Linus, Carcinogeny, Bonito in Atlanta, and folks shared their thoughts on Twitter as yeah. well. Um, and there were people that disagreed when we made the suggestion that the they director's, the director's cut, cut. Yeah. Well, I like it better because it fills in a little bit of the gaps, um, but I can see where somebody might not like it as good as the original theatrical version. Right. I will say that theatrical release is a better movie. Standing alone, if you just want to see a good movie, watch the one that went out correctly. In fact, I think a lot of people said that the director's cut was too indulgent, that they were glad somebody clipped out a lot of the stuff that uh-huh. uh, didn't make it into the theatrical release. But if you want to see what the director was thinking, if you want to see him kind of go a little off the deep end with the time travel and the paradox and the anomaly and what's going on, then that's where the director's cut comes from if you right. really want to explore that. And since so many of you had these thoughts and actually discovered perhaps Donnie Darko for the first time, mm-hmm. we should mention that we also just now watched another film that could be relevant to thinking about Lost. It's called Primer. It came out in 2004. It actually won an award at the Cannes Film Festival. It's an independent movie and it's probably, it was shot on a very low budget so it's really got that kind of mumbly low budget feel but has a very thick dense plot definitely something that will tie your brain in knots i mean if you think the lost is confusing then maybe you don't want to come anywhere near primer but uh, what i love about this movie in addition to the fact that it was an indie film and that they did not dumb it down for anybody in fact they kept it so far above my head that i was dizzy for most of the day afterward trying to figure out what's going on but they really go in detail about the physical and theoretical ways that time travel could work. I mean, everything from like, how do you avoid paradox? How do you pull yourself out of the equation if you're going to run into yourself? What it could mean? There are even elements like, you know, people coming too close in proximity to other people and becoming sick in the same way that we had with the rabbits or the theories that we thought were going to happen in season five as our characters came into contact with each other. So if you like time travel movies, if you like thinking about these aspects, then Primer is definitely a great movie to check out. Absolutely. I remember us saying during season five that uh, some of this time travel stuff was giving us a headache. Well, Primer's going to give you a stroke. I mean, it's (laughs) that much beyond. I had to go to a website that 
plotted it all out, and I couldn't even understand the website. So that's <laughs> how high a level this operates at. But yeah, during the hiatus, you need the mental calisthenics. I definitely recommend it. And you watch can actually, it twice. Yeah, and you can actually watch it uh, streaming from Netflix on your Roku box or, or online. Yeah, whatever, however it works. So check out Primer. Now, before we go from this segment, we definitely want to take a moment to specifically also thank listeners who recently gave us great feedback in iTunes. A big I'm a hollow goes to <laughs> George Case, Gabriel R.G., Lost in Lindenhurst, and Seraph Shell. Thanks a lot, everybody. In any case, great feedback all around, and we're definitely glad that you're taking this trip down memory lane with us. Please remember, every email, whether we can include it in our show or not, enters you to win a limited edition Benjamin Linus bobblehead doll, which was a Comic-Con exclusive item from Entertainment Earth. We're also happy to announce an additional prize for our Season That's 3 right. rewatch. Thanks to the Others Lost Band. They're a great band based in Massachusetts. They write a song based on every episode of Lost, and you could win a copy of their Season 3 and Season 4 CDs. Yeah. We'd like to thank Tommy and his bandmates for donating their great music as a prize, and you'll be able to hear some of it in just a moment. That's right. Now, looking ahead, our next podcast will be on September 20th, and we're going to cover Season 3, Episodes 4, 5, and 6. That's Every Man for Himself, which is a Sawyer episode, The Cost of Living, which is a Mr. Echo episode, and I Do, a Kate episode. And we'd love to hear your thoughts, observations, new discoveries, and other feedback by September 18th. We want to know, what did you notice this time around that you missed the first time? What things suddenly seem to foreshadow things that we've seen in Season 4 and Season 5? And what things seem to contradict or simply not fit in with the loss of today? So you can send your feedback via email to lost at whatyup.com, post it on the blog at whatyup.com slash lost, or call the Lost Line at 815-310-0808. Now, coming up in about four minutes, we will step inside the forward cabin. This is where we hide production news, rumors, spoilers, sightings, and all kinds of fun stuff. But first, as a special treat to clear the aisles leading up to the forward cabin, a little musical interlude. Here's a song by The Others Lost Band, based on the season five finale titled Jacob Loves You. A little kitty hanging out with Tom. Going to the store, there's some Patsy Klein. All she wants some new kids on the block lunchbox. Let's try to steal but gets caught Uncle Jacob comes to the rescue Katie, you're not gonna steal anymore, are you? Sawyer's mom and dad died And now he has got a letter to write Jacob's got a pen he can use James, you're not gonna write that letter now, are you? Cause what's done is done And you might have found a Dream. 
Jacob Loves You by the Others Lost Band, and that song was based on the season five finale. And like we said at the start of the show, that tune has been stuck in my head all week. I can't stop singing it. Yeah, stabbed by Ben, blown up by Jack, or shot as a child by Saeed. Good stuff. So we want to say thanks again to Tommy and the crew for donating two of their albums from season three and season four to our season three review. Now it's spoiler time. Absolutely. Turn it off if you don't want to know. Now, Lost has been filming here on the island for the last two weeks. Unfortunately, most of that first week was spent cooped up on the film studio lot on Diamond Head. My friend at Capulani Community College, who keeps an eye on them for me, said that they were definitely there. They were definitely busy. Unfortunately, they were well out of sight. Not too bad. Well, fortunately, though, um, there were some visiting fans here in the island, and they were able to run around while I couldn't. Now, the ODI, a very well-known blogger and Lost podcaster, was in town, as well as a couple of visiting fans from from Spain and a young lady from New York and they also helped keep an eye on what was going on so late that first week they found them out on the west side of Oahu past Makaha filming right there on the beach and the scene was Jacob's Beach Temple yes the foot of the four-toed statue cool. basically it looks like it picks up close to where everything left off at the end of season five and uh, the actors there were Terry O'Quinn uh, Michael Emerson uh, the guy who plays Albert with the guy liners Mr. Carbonell, sorry, uh, Yunjum Kim um, and uh, Bram and Ilana were there, um, basically again continuing that scene. What about Frank? 
Actually, I don't know. They didn't mention. I, I would imagine that Frank is still there too. And in fact, specifically, uh, the scene was described to me because the aforementioned fans were able to sit and watch from pretty darn close. Um, the scene was as follows. Lock, or I guess unlock, and Ben come out of the temple. And uh, given the fact that there's a deadlock in the sand, uh, everybody points their gun at unlock. I mean, certainly in one shot, you have the body in the foreground and unlock coming out of the temple. So everybody points their guns at him and he steps up to Albert, and after a few short words, he uh, beats him up and leaves Albert lying on the ground. So <laughs> somehow, uh, Terry O'Quinn, uh, good old Locke, is uh, asserting himself with Albert there at the, the, the temple, and basically unlock, then wags his finger at everyone around him, standing around, and says, I'm very disappointed in all of you. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, that was just one of many uh, scenes that were filmed, but glad to share that with you folks. Now, uh, this past week, they filmed mostly at night. And unfortunately, again, all deep in the jungles of Kaneohe, out of sight there at Iakea inland of the um, harbor. But I have a friend who works at the harbor. He was always giving me a call. And again, our friends from New York and Spain also tried to check it out, um, but they couldn't see much. They did sort of hang out where the trailers were, uh, sort of annoyed security. At least one of these fans got a great picture of Evangeline Lilly, um, but again, no real news about what was going on, just that they were filming a very intense scene. Mm. And uh, her speculation, pure speculation, was that uh, Kate and Sawyer specifically were dealing with what may or may not have happened to Sweet Sweet Juliet. Mm. But again, you know, no particular details. And uh, the actors, the only other actors that were spotted there were uh, Matthew Fox or Jack, Josh Holloway, Sawyer, or uh, Ken Leung or Miles. But uh, we don't know where they are. Actually, we don't know when they are even or what's going on. And no sign so far of Juliet uh, or Hurley or Saeed. Mm. So no idea what's going on. But we did want to again share what little we could um, here on the island with the filming. And we'll continue to share these reports with you here on our podcast, if you want to read them as soon as they get posted, check it out at hawaiiweblog.com. That's my blog, and there's a specific section for Lost. Uh, beyond the filming, though, there is other information and news coming out about Lost. John Hawks has been cast from the premiere. He's from Deadwood, one of many, many people to have appeared on both Deadwood and Lost. He is playing a spokesperson and translator for a foreign company who is charismatic but a little edgy. Mm. The casting call described what they were looking for as someone very interesting. And I think he certainly qualifies and uh, was translator for a foreign company. That uh, has a couple of possibilities yeah, for absolutely. Uh, characters that we've known. Also, David H. Lawrence posted on his Twitter account that he's been cast on Lost and uh, at least one episode, maybe more. And you might know him as Eric Doyle on season three of Heroes. Uh, no, I wouldn't. If you're watching Heroes. Apparently he was the best part of this third season of Heroes. But in any case, he's coming to Lost and he's one of those, hey, it's that guy guys i think you've seen him in other tv shows yeah he's been like on csi the unit some various other shows like that right so uh, maybe he's going to appear in episode three but thank god for twitter breaking news um, we should mention uh, some of the casting calls that have gone out we did mention john hawks's role um there's episode one a casting call looking for a character nicknamed jeff or codenamed jeff who is a polished and efficient pr guy for a high profile company that has to deliver bad news to an executive again many possibilities many many possibilities there was a casting call for episode two code named paul who is an overworked man who struggles to remain calm but ultimately panics wasn't amy's husband named paul the other 
Well, I wonder. I don't think, though, that's probably what this is. I mean, these mm, casting calls are not. now starting to yeah. just use random names. And finally, the last casting call to come out was uh, for a number of characters. Uh, first was one named Melky, described as a dangerous guy that runs a seedy chop shop. Um, another was Russell, a tough guy with a compassionate streak that could describe anybody. And finally, Jenny, a sweet, happy yuppie that gets bad news. Hmm. I mean, I don't know. We haven't had altogether that many yuppies. I mean, Shannon was probably the last yuppie that we've had. But uh, who knows? Those are the casting calls for the first three episodes Well, when there was first casting news about um, Daniel Faraday, his codename was Russell. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, so again, yeah. I don't know if we can draw anything from the names, just sort of the descriptions of the characters, which are unfortunately pretty darn vague. Well, that's it for The Forward Cabin, lost filming and casting and other news. And that means that's it for this episode of The Transmission. Remember, your homework is to watch (laughs) season three. That's the green box, episodes four, five, and six. And get your feedback to us by Friday, September 18th. This show is powered by you, so please... Please send us an email, comment on the blog, call the Lost Line, post a note on iTunes, even tweet us on Twitter, whatever. We love hearing from you. Absolutely. So you can email us at lost at hawaiiup.com, comment at hawaiiup.com slash lost, call 815-310-0808, or you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Hawaii. And I'm at Mrs. Hawaii, MRS Hawaii. I'm also on Facebook at Jen Ozawa. Oh, yes. Facebook.com slash Jen Ozawa and I'm facebook.com slash Ozawa so there you go a multitude of ways to get in touch with us and to hear our many inane thoughts but (laughs) in any case we love to talk lost so let's connect all right well that means uh, we're about done we'll be back in about two weeks to continue our lost season three review and share more news from the show's production right here in Honolulu enjoy everybody stay lost aloha aloha This podcast is a proud member of the Lost Podcasting Network. Get all your favorite Lost podcasts in one feed at lostcasts.blogspot.com.